You've got the gospel narratives, and then Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. I know most of you know where it is, but if you're new to the scriptures, and if you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand, and Pastor Jim's in the back, um, and he'll be happy to hand you a Bible. So you can follow along with this. We'll be in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. If you're new to Calvary Chapel or if you're visiting this morning here, what we do is we study the scriptures chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we will go through uh, this book as we do the other books of the Bible, as we'll go through all of it, starting in chapter 1, verse 1 to the end. So if you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll start at verse 1 there. It's going to be a wonderful study, just as the book of Romans was. All the books of the Bible are a wonderful study, but this is going to be, again, just um, we're going to glean some wonderful, wonderful truths here in the Scripture. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1. All right. Father, we ask that you'd bless this time in the study of your word. And Lord, uh, I just thank you that uh, we had such a rich, wonderful time uh, over the last several months in that powerful epistle of Romans. But Lord, we also know that as we start a new book, that there's uh, new truths that you desire to bring to us. And you want to particularly bring comfort and words of hope to us as we find ourselves in difficulties and trials. And, and uh, Paul talks much about that in this epistle. And in this day in which we're living in, it can be hard. And we go through the trials and the difficulties of life. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning that truly we would be comforted and that we would read here what the apostle begins to say, inspired by the Spirit of God. And, Lord, that we would tuck those things in our hearts and remember your faithfulness and uh, your love for us that never fails, just as we sang this morning. And, Lord, may it be real in our lives. And, Lord, may uh, it give us strength and, and consolation. So, Lord, we look forward to this book and what you have to say to us as we go through it Sunday uh, mornings and um, as you speak to us and to our hearts. Do that this morning as we begin, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So to give you a little way of background and introduction into 2 Corinthians, um, it's always good when you read the epistles to go back to the book of Acts and to look how perhaps those churches got started. I know that not all the epistles uh, that are written to the churches were uh, mentioned in the book of Acts, like, for example, the book of Colossians. Paul had never been there. But we know that Paul would start the book, or not the book, but the church of, of Corinth on his second missionary journey. And he would go from Philippi down to Thessalonica, to Berea, and then he would make his way into Athens on that second missionary journey. And you read about his second missionary journey in chapters 16 through 18 of the book of Acts. And when he came to the city of Athens, of course, Athens being the capital of the Greek culture and the most sophisticated city in all of the world and a lot of philosophers and Greek philosophers that were there. And when Paul would address those philosophers on Mars Hills in Acts chapter 17, many of those who listened to Paul there in Athens, they mocked Paul. Um, they said, well, we'll hear you again on this matter. And there was a few that believed Paul and, and a few that would end up becoming Christians as they would give their lives to Christ. But a church was never started there in Athens at that time. And 
I just think that probably that was a great disappointment for Paul because Athens at that time, again, being the most sophisticated city in the world, and he knew that if he could impact Athens for Christ, then it would go a long ways in impacting the empire for the cause of Christ. But it didn't happen. And even though Paul, who was a great intellect himself, he was a great scholar, he gave this very polished and very sophisticated sermon there on Mars Hill. And Paul would leave that place. He would then travel south, about 50 miles to the south, to the city of Corinth. And as we read about him coming to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he meets up with that couple that we discussed last week, uh, Aquila and Priscilla. They were ones that Paul greeted in Rome as we saw the, the greetings that he gave to the Christians in Rome as we finished that epistle last week. And Aquila and Priscilla were this couple. They were outstanding in the Lord. They were good friends of Paul. And Paul would meet them for the first time when he went into Corinth. And, and Aquila and Priscilla, they were tent makers. They were probably converted uh, to Christianity by Paul's ministry. But they were tent makers as well as Paul was a tent maker. And Paul would do that trade of making tents to support himself. So he comes into Corinth. He didn't receive support from the Corinthian believers, but he would work in making tents. He would uh, work with uh, Aquila and Priscilla as well in making tents because they were tent makers, and they would co-labor together. And Paul would stay with this couple and minister. And Paul, when he came into Corinth, we read about how he first went to the synagogue. That's what he would customarily do when he went into a city. If there was a synagogue there, he would first go to the synagogue he declared Christ to them to the Jews and they rejected him and they rejected the gospel message and what Paul was saying to them and Paul said that's it I'm going to leave you guys I'm going to go to the Gentiles and and Paul would leave the synagogue he didn't go very far he just went next door uh, to a house owned by a man named Justice and as he began to preach there all of a sudden revival broke out and people started getting saved, and the church of Corinth began to grow very, very quickly. And Paul ended up staying in Corinth for about a year and a half, which was a long, long time uh, for Paul to stay in one place. Only Ephesus did Paul spend more time uh, ministering in. And you might recall that as Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, that he was writing to them about how he came to them. He said, you remember that when I came to you, I was in much weakness and fear and, and trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with persuasive words, but in the demonstration and power of the Holy Spirit. And I was determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ in him crucified. And I think that perhaps just as Paul was traveling from Athens to Corinth, that he was thinking about what happened there in Athens. He, he had given this very scholarly, polished sermon to those very sophisticated uh, you know, philosophers there on Mars Hill. And many commentators say that it was the most scholarly sermon that Paul ever gave, and it probably was. It, it was very much in that way. He was relating to them on their level, quoting their, their poets. But it's interesting that when you look at that address, again, in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill, recorded for us, he gave them truth, but he never mentioned the name of Jesus specifically. 
He talked about the resurrection. He, he says the man's making reference to Jesus, who God raised from the dead, but he didn't say Jesus specifically. And then he travels to Corinth, and he says to the Corinthians, you remember that when I came to you, I didn't come with excellence of speech. I didn't come with persuasive words. But I was determined not to know anything, among, anything else among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus and him crucified was my simple message. And Corinth was impacted by that simple message of the gospel. And again, I want to remind us that are here this morning, may that be the message of this place. Jesus Christ in him crucified. That we would give the simplicity of the gospel to people that we know and have opportunity to, to share with. And they would know what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross. The simplicity of the gospel as we proclaim it this morning, that we as sinners and all of us are sinners stand guilty before God, but God gave us hope through Jesus Christ because the Son of God came to this world because of his love for you and for me, and he died for our sins. And as he shed his blood on Calvary's cross, he bore our sins upon himself and he would be put into a grave and he rose again after three days. No one else died for you. No one else rose from the grave. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And as just as we saw the powerful gospel preached and proclaimed in the book of Romans, that we also know that as we come to Jesus in faith and as we surrender our hearts to him, as we say, I am in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ, because I am a sinner. He is my hope. He is my salvation. It's found in no one else or in nothing else. So I believe in you, Jesus. I surrender my heart to you. I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart the Lord Jesus and that God raised you from the dead. Forgive me. Then we are justified freely by his grace as we know. Justified, being declared righteous. That's what brings salvation. That's how we receive forgiveness of sin. So we give the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus Christ in him crucified. It, what Jesus did for us on Calvary and, and rising from the grave. But it would be that Paul, as he brought that message, it impacted the city of Corinth. Paul would eventually leave Corinth. He wrote a letter to the, those believers that is prior to 1 Corinthians. And the reason that we know that he wrote this first letter, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he said to them that I wrote you in my letter not to keep company with immoral people. So Paul wrote an initial letter to them, that letter being lost. The Corinthian church, after that letter was written to them, they wrote Paul back, and they had some questions that they asked Paul. And at that time as well, Paul learned that there was a lot of problems going on in the church of Corinth. They were a church that was a divided church. Some of the believers were challenging Paul's apostleship. Some of them were following after the wisdom of men. Uh, they were a carnal church. Uh, they had some real problems in their doctrine. So Paul, in what we know as 1 Corinthians, which is really his second letter to them, he addresses all of those problems. And when I read 1 Corinthians, I think, what a challenge it would have been to be the pastor of that church because they were really a mixed-up church and they were full of carnality and accepting of immorality and all these things that we read in 1 Corinthians that was a corrective letter. It was quite stern, 1 Corinthians, of course, and corrective. 
So Paul, seeking to correct a lot of the doctrinal errors that did exist, seeking to bring them from their carnality and immaturity into a real spiritual walk, into maturity in the Lord, and desiring to bring them into unity. And the effect of his first letter, which is the second letter that he wrote to them, but what we have in what we know as 1 Corinthians, is that some of the people repented. Uh, they were corrected, but still they would continue in their struggles. And there were others that even turned more firmly against Paul. There were the ones that were more legalistic, that came against Paul. They, uh, of course, were not accepting the Paul who was a champion of grace. But there were those who really had not accepted the grace of God that Paul shared. And so they continued to challenge Paul, his teachings, and they also challenged his apostleship. Now, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus, that's around 54 A.D., which was, again, a letter that he wrote when he was on his third missionary journey. He would give that letter of 1 Corinthians to Timothy. Timothy, of course, being a young disciple of Paul, a young protege of Paul, he would deliver that letter to 1 Corinthians to the believers in Corinth. Paul then decides that he's going to pay a short visit to the church. He sails from Ephesus over to Corinth, and he visited them, but that visit didn't go very well. Paul refers to it as a painful visit, as we're going to see in chapter 2 of this epistle. And after that visit, Paul goes back to Ephesus. He wrote a third letter to the Corinthians, which was lost like the first letter. And it was delivered, that third letter, by Titus to the church. Titus being another one of young, uh, a young disciple of Paul. And as the third letter, the only hint that we get that was in that letter, that it, it grieved Paul to write that letter because it was a very harsh letter. Again, we'll see that in chapter 2 of this epistle that he makes reference to that. So Paul in Ephesus, after his ministry there in Ephesus, it would come to an end. The, the silversmiths in Ephesus would riot, as you read in Acts chapter 19, and Paul would have to leave that city. He leaves Ephesus in the spring of 56 AD. He's bound for Macedonia, there in Greece, and in north of Achaia where, where uh, Corinth is. He makes a stop first in Troash, where he hopes to meet Titus and get news of the reaction of the Corinthian church. But he doesn't find Titus there. And Titus doesn't show. There's no email, there's no cell phones, there's no text messaging, any of those things that, that Paul can use to try to get a hold of Titus. So Paul's very concerned for Titus. So he pushes towards Macedonia, and there he finally meets Titus, who told Paul, Paul, listen, I got some good news. For the most part, the Christians at Corinth are, are doing better. But I also got some bad news as well. There's still a group that is opposed to you, Paul. And from Macedonia, Paul now writes 2 Corinthians, which is actually Paul's fourth letter to them. And Paul, in this letter here, he is now more personal. You're going to see that this letter is more personal as he expresses his love for them, as he expresses his concern for them, despite their fickleness and, and the difficulties that they were still experiencing. And he appeals to the few minority to accept his authority. You see, there were some in the church of Corinth at this time that were accepting those who were calling themselves super apostles and prophets and, and ruling over the people with a heavy hand. So he's going to address that as well. 
So let's begin to look at that with that background of 2 Corinthians. Let's read this letter together and study it as we read in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia. So Paul, given that familiar introduction, Paul, an apostle by the will of God, it would be a statement to those who are challenging his apostleship, that, that group there in Corinth that was saying, hey, Paul, you just take that title of, a, of apostle upon yourself. You're not really an apostle. But here he lays claim to the fact that he's an apostle, not by the will of man, not by his own, you know, giving himself this title. It's by the will of God. And he is an apostle by the calling of God. And if that group from Corinth held Paul in a low regard, it didn't diminish his standing as an apostle before God. Now, God will call us to different things. For me, he has called me to be a pastor teacher. Others of you, you can say, well, I'm a, a, a nurse or you can say that I'm a mechanic, some of you. Some of you say that I work in construction. Others of you say I'm a school teacher, whatever it might be. But God has called people and Christians into all kinds of occupations and to be in different places. And we also know that he has called us to different ministries as well. We all have a ministry. We all have a place to minister. Whoever is linked to you in your life, that's who you get to minister to. Whether it's that place at work as a mechanic or in the school as a teacher or at the hospital as a nurse, whatever it might be. But we all have ministries. We have giftings and callings. And Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, are all apostles? Are, are all evangelists? Do all work miracles? And, and of course, the answer being obviously no, because it was a rhetorical type question. And Paul could say in his life that I am an apostle by the will of God. The important thing is that I am what I am by the will of God. That I am doing what God has called for me to do, what he has willed for me to do. And it's a marvelous thing when you can say concerning your life, that I am walking according to the will and plan of God for me. That whatever it is I am, I am by the will of God. And he goes on and he writes to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Achaia. So Paul including all the believers that were in that area of Corinth. So this letter was to spread, be read to all the Christians among all the churches that were in that area of Achaia, that province in the northern part uh, or southern part of Greece. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this familiar greeting of Paul used in all 13 of his New Testament letters, grace being God's unmerited favor. Unearned favor of God is what grace means. God saved us when we were not worthy to be saved. I think a great definition of grace we find again in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God saved us. He didn't come and save us while we had our act together or we were living righteously. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us because of his love for us. Unmerited favor. We know that Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. We were dead spiritually, but he has made us alive. That is grace. 
God receiving us, giving us that unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. And once we experience the grace of God, then we can have peace with God. One of the benefits of justification, again, in Romans chapter 5, is we have access to God and we have peace with God, and then you can have the peace of God that rules in your heart. But you will never experience the peace of God until first you've experienced the grace of God. And that's why you will always see it in that order. It's grace and peace. You never see it the other way around. And when you realize, because of the grace of God, that you can rest in His love, that you can know of His faithfulness, that you are secure in his hands, then you will have peace. And people who do not understand grace, they will not have the peace of God. In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So as we look at Paul's life, as we look at his missionary journeys, again, that are recorded for us in the book of Acts, we know that Paul went through much difficulties and tribulations and pain and affliction. And Paul was one that he knew what it was like going through tribulation. And whenever that we go through our own tribulation, it seems to, or at least with me, I'll speak for myself, sometimes it can take me by surprise. I can think, oh no, this tribulation, this difficulties, uh, this hard time I'm going through, what's this all about? And I can be surprised by it. And Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for the testing, for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. And all of us, we all go through difficulties of life. We experience the trials and the tribulations, every single one of us. Matter of fact, Jesus promised that we would have tribulation because we live in a fallen world. We have the enemy that comes against us. Jesus said you will have tribulation. He didn't say you might have tribulation. He said you will have tribulation, but he didn't leave us there. He said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And we see that tribulation certainly in Paul's life to a great degree. Later in this letter, he's going to list the things that he went through, the most difficult of things, the persecution that he went through. But Paul also knew the comfort of God. He knew the mercy and the comfort of God. And he knew how to comfort others with that comfort that comes from God. When Paul, in Acts chapter 27, earlier this, uh, this week, at the beginning of the week, I uh, was feeling sick and had a bad cold and, and uh, was dealing with all that. So long day was on Monday. So Tuesday morning, I just wanted to do some work from home and just try to get some rest and uh, before I went in later in the afternoon into the office here. And Sue was having devotion with the kids downstairs, and I was sitting on the steps listening to it. But she was reading to them from Acts chapter 27, and it, and it reminded me of that story as she was doing that, that Paul, he was headed to Rome at that time. You recall he went through a legal nightmare there beginning in Acts chapter 21 as he was accused of taking Gentiles to the temple in Jerusalem. But it would lead to him going to Rome because Paul, being a Roman citizen, he would appeal to Caesar. And so they said to Caesar, you shall go. 
So in Acts chapter 27, he gets on a ship headed for Rome. There was a bad storm that came up, as, as you read, and the storm lasted for days, for two weeks. And the other prisoners and the crew on that ship, they thought, it's over, it's done, we're going to perish. And Paul, who had been seeking the Lord, being comforted by the Lord, who told him not to be afraid, and Paul, being comforted by God, was able to tell the others on that ship that you guys take heart. We're not going to perish. Not a hair of your head's going to be lost. And eventually the boat would be broken apart and, and fall apart, and they all jumped shipped, and they were all washed up on an island called Malta. And they're soaking wet. They're cold. They're hungry. They're beat up. And so the, the locals on that island begin to build a fire, as we read as you move into chapter 28 of Acts. And as the others were drying out, they're cold, they're weary, they're hungry and miserable. Paul's there on the beach. He's gathering sticks so he could put it on the fire so that others might be warmed. You see, that's the way Paul was. Whenever Paul went through storms and difficulties himself, it always seemed that Paul was able to bring comfort to others because he knew of that comfort that came from God. So Paul would put that bundle of sticks on the fire, and all of a sudden a snake came out, a poisonous viper, and bit Paul on the hand, and it's hanging on his hand there, and, and he shakes it off, and it falls off. And, and the locals there, knowing what kind of snake that was, they had dealt with those snakes. It was a very poisonous snake. They thought, uh-oh, this guy's in big trouble. He is done for, and he must be a murderer. So they're waiting for him to swell up, to turn blue, and to fall over dead. And so they're waiting and they're waiting, and time passes, and nothing happens. He, Paul's not hurt by this poisonous snake. So they changed their minds, and then they thought, well, he must be a god. They were amazed. And Paul, we knew at that time, he would use the opportunity, as we read in Acts chapter 28, to share to them, the locals on that island, about the reality of the Lord. So a question that we can ask ourselves this morning, when can we really effectively bring comfort to others? When can we really minister to family members and to neighbors and to co-workers, those who perhaps are not saved? When will they really receive from us? I think oftentimes they receive from us when they see the comfort and the strength of the Lord in you. When you get bit, when they see that you don't fall down, when they see the reality of the Lord in you, when they see the way that you have been bitten by the snake of the hurts and the problems and the difficulties and the hardship and the sadness, and you're able to continue in worshiping the Lord and giving thanksgiving to the Lord. In trusting the Lord. Because they've been bitten by the same snake. And they're wondering, is there any hope? Is there any real comfort? Is there any solution? Is, is there any answers for me? And they see how you react to the difficulties, the adversities, and they will see the strength of the Lord in you, the comfort that He gives to you, and a comfort that only comes from God. Because as people, we can give words of comfort and encouragement, but it's temporal at best. Only true, lasting comfort comes from Jesus Christ. And as people, they see you comforted by the God of comfort, 
As they see that being worked out in your life, they see that you have a peace that passes understanding. That they see that you have a joy that is unspeakable. And they say, wow, there's something different about that person. That person that says that they're a Christian. And they've been bitten by the same snake that I've been bitten by. But they didn't swell up. They didn't give up. And there's a peace in them. And there's something deep inside of them that, that they perhaps don't recognize that it's a joy, the joy of the Lord. And they have real hope. And what they are seeing is the reality of Jesus Christ in you. And they will be comforted by you as you take the time, the opportunity to share with them. And the very struggles that you may go through is going to give you a sensitivity and a compassion for and insight into those things that others are troubled by. And you see, in our troubles and struggles and weaknesses, the Lord's going to bring comfort to us, and then we can bring it to others, and we can minister to others, and we can say to them, listen, God is good, and God is faithful if you turn to Him. And he desires to work in your heart and strengthen you and bring true comfort to you. And you encourage others in the Lord. Hey, the Lord will see you through. He's going to see you through. In Mark chapter 4, many of you know this story. As you go through Mark chapter 4, Jesus had been talking to the disciples about receiving the word of God and, and about faith. He talked about and gave the parable of the the parable of the sower and the, the, the parable of the, uh, the plant that germinated and all these things that he's teaching them. And so here he is. He, he's teaching them on faith, receiving the word of God. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, okay, guys, let's get in a boat and cross over to the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And they did. And Jesus had been ministering to the multitudes. He had been ministering to where he's healing them. He's, he's healing the multitudes. He gets into that boat and he's tired. Just as we talked about last week, that ministry, it's work. You don't get tired of doing ministry, but you get tired in doing ministry. He's exhausted. He falls asleep in a boat. And here they are in the middle of the sea. And all of a sudden, a storm came up and, be, and began to, to blow on them. It was violent storm it was ferocious and the disciples they panicked now remember that many of the disciples grew up on that lake they had seen storms but this one was bad it was so bad that even those experienced fishermen were afraid probably a storm like they had never seen before and so what they do is they wake jesus up and they said don't you care that we perish don't you care that we're going to go under and jesus said as he arose, peace, be still. And the winds calmed, and the waves were stilled. And then he would turn to the disciples, who were astonished when they saw that happen. They were amazed. They said, who is this that even the winds and the seas obey them? But then he turns to his disciples, and he rebukes them. He says, why are you guys so fearful, and why is it that you have no faith? Now, that's interesting because I think if that was me in that boat, I would have been the first one waking Jesus up in that situation. That would have been a natural reaction that I would have had. Wake up. Don't you care? We're about ready to go under. Don't you understand what's going on? Don't you see what's going on, on here? And so Jesus wakes up. He calms the storm, and he says to them, Why have you no faith? Why would Jesus say that to them? Because he had just taught on them 
to them about receiving the Word of God. And after teaching about receiving the Word of God, teaching on faith then comes to testing on faith. After the teaching on receiving the Word, after the teaching comes testing. He had just gotten through teaching a parable to them on the kingdom as it relates to the Word. He taught on receiving the Word, then he gives them his Word. He said to them, let's go over to the other side. The word was given, the word was spoken. He gave us word, and it was, we're going to go over to the other side. Now the word was being challenged by the storm, and it looked like the boat was going to go down, but he gave us word, let's pass over. And if Jesus gave his word, and he's in the boat, and he's in your life, you're not going to go down. Because he has promised to perfect that which has concerned you. And the Lord is in your heart. And even though all of us here know that there are times when the storms rage in our lives. And you might be thinking, Lord, wow, do you really see me? Don't you care, Lord? Don't you see that I'm sinking? I'm perishing? Do you even care, Lord? In the Old Testament book of Zephaniah, in chapter 3, The Lord says this, The Lord thy God in the midst of the mighty, he will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. So whatever storm that you might be facing presently, today, or perhaps tomorrow, you may be wondering, "Uh oh, Lord, am I going to make it? Do you see me? Do you really care? I want you to know something that the Word of God tells us very clearly, that he's going to joy over you with singing that he's going to rejoice over you with joy, that he is going to see you through, that he's resting in his love for you. And the work that he has begun in you, I love that verse of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion, especially in the day of Christ Jesus. So if Jesus is at rest in his love for you, then I need to learn to be at rest in him. And the word that I receive from him, I know that he's going to bring it to pass. And this morning that he says to you and to me, I am the one that's going to bring comfort to you in all your tribulations. And for those of us that are in any trouble, the Word of God is given to us, and we can stand on that Word. The Word of God given to us that He'll never leave us or forsake us. That He's working all things out for good for those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. His purpose is that he would complete that work in you and me that he began. He promised that he would see us through until the day that he comes back for us. And he rests. He rests in his love for you, for me. And that means I can say, okay, Lord, no matter how rough the seas may be, if you're at rest, then I'm going to be at rest as well. If you're working, then I know that you're going to complete it. And and you've given your word that we're going to go over, then we're going to go over. We're not going to go under. Now, there might be some of you, one or two, that you're in a difficulty right now or in a tribulation or or going through hard times right now, and you might be thinking, I'm probably the only one that's going through it this morning. I'm the only one that's going through difficulties. Uh, It's interesting. When you read Mark chapter 4, in verse 36, it says that when the disciples were in that boat on that lake, it says that there were other little boats that were with them. And in my Bible, I have that underlined because, you know what, it speaks of that there's a whole lot of us that are on that same lake. 
There are all kinds of boats out there getting tossed around. And when those disciples cried out to Jesus and he calmed the storm, guess what? Those other little <coughs> boats got blessed. They got benefited. A whole bunch of other boats got blessed when the calms of the sea came to them. So they benefited. <coughs> and because of what Jesus did for them, they weren't blown away. And when others see that you are going through the storms and you're resting in his word and that God's working in your life and that he's bringing true comfort to you and that they see that you're going to get to the other side, that they're going to be blessed. And they say, wow, you endured the storm without panicking, without caving in, without sinking into the, the sea of despair. How were you able to do that? And then we get to share the word with them how the Lord is good and how he's faithful and we can rest and trust in him and that his word is true for them as well and it will be a blessing and a witness to others as they go through the storms because we all go through storms, every single one of us. But Paul the Apostle, who went through many storms himself, said that the one that we believe in is the God of all comfort. He goes on to say, as he's inspired by the Spirit of God in verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, our comfort, also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will be par partake of the consolation. Paul says, I, I know the sufferings, I know the afflictions, I've been there, and he could comfort them. And notice that he says, where the sufferings of Christ abound, Paul knew that his sufferings were really the sufferings of Christ, for Christ. You recall in his prison epistles that he says, I'm not a prisoner of Rome, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. But he went on to say, don't lose heart in my tribulations, for it's for your glory, it's for the furtherance of the gospel. And as Paul went through those difficult days because of his ministry and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul also discovered that Jesus was there with him in his sufferings, and that where sufferings abound, consolation or comfort also abounds. And we need to remember that. Jesus is there to bring comfort if we will receive it, if we turn to him. As we look to him, it comes from him. And oftentimes as Christians, what we will do is we'll make the mistake of trying to find comfort by perhaps our own wisdom or going our own direction, trying to figure things out, uh, our own plan, or, or you know, trying to come up with our own strength. And the thing that we need to keep in mind is that that comfort needs to come from Christ. We need to go to him. He has promised to be by our side, comforting us, never leaving us alone. And Paul's sufferings was for their consolation and salvation. Paul was bringing comfort and salvation to the Corinthian Christians, and he went through great sufferings. And it made Paul, as he went through those sufferings, more and more you know, dependent upon the Lord and on God to trust in his promises. Now, when Paul was in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision at night. Paul was afraid. And so the Lord comes to Paul and says, Paul, don't be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you and no one's going to hurt you. For I have many people in this city, and Paul was established in that city for a year and a half, teaching the word of the Lord, because he believed 
in the promise that was given to him. The promise given to him that no one's going to hurt you, Paul, in the promise of his presence, I am with you. And as a result of being comforted by the words of the Lord, there were many people in Corinth that belonged to the Lord and people that are in crisis, in tribulations, being afflicted. People get anxious. They get disoriented. Their hearts begin to race and their minds go a million miles a minute. And when we feel that way, remember God's word to Paul because they weren't just for him, but they're also for us as well. Don't be afraid. It was the same word that was given to those disciples in that boat, in that story on that night. Don't be afraid. And there was the promise of his presence to Paul that I am with you, and that's a promise given to you and to me. There was the promise given to him that no one's going to hurt you, Paul, and the Lord was with him and with his disciples in that boat in Mark chapter 4 as he gave them a promise that we're going to go to the other side. And it was a lesson that they needed to learn at that time because as they made it to the other side, you see, it would be a short time later as you move into the book of Acts that those same disciples would go through another storm. It was the storm of persecution. And they needed to know that God is faithful and that God's word to them was true. And again, that they could rest and trust in him, that he's with them, and they could be established. And they knew that he was with them in their sufferings for Christ. And they found comfort in Christ, and they were able to continue on and minister powerfully and effectively and bring salvation to others. When Jesus died on the cross, there was a Roman centurion that was watching the actual crucifixion of Jesus. He saw what was being done. He said of Jesus that truly he is the Son of God. He's a righteous man. And surely the centurion, he had seen many, many people be crucified there outside of Jerusalem. But yet there was something very remarkable about Jesus that this centurion would say of no one else who ended up glorifying God, who saw Jesus for who he was. Certainly he was the Son of God. It's a picture of all those who come to Jesus through the cross, fulfilling what Jesus said, that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And what impacted that Roman centurion 2,000 years ago was the way that Jesus handled suffering and death and pain and rejection. The centurions, man, these guys were tough. They were strong. They were no nonsense. They were rugged. They were the ones that were the backbone of the Roman army. And this centurion was no doubt, I don't think he was impressed with the Jews until he saw the way that this one, the king of the Jews, faced suffering. And that's when he was impacted. And you see, when you and I go through suffering or pain, we feel like we're dying, or maybe it is that you hear those words or your loved one hears those words that you got a terminal sickness and as we go through the difficulties we need to understand that it can be a method a way that the Lord uses to bring conversion to the centurions of our lives In Exodus chapter 14, you know the story. God had his people against the Red Sea, two mountain ranges on both sides, Pyrrhiroth and Migdol. What purpose did God do that for? Well, when you read the chapter, it says that that God might be glorified amongst the Egyptians. And they will see my people boxed in. When they see that I will deliver them, then they're going to see that I am the Lord. The Egyptians, Egypt being a type of the world, biblically, 
And I'm like anybody else. I don't necessarily like to be boxed in. I don't like to go through trials and difficulties or hard times. I don't want to experience pain. But in reality, that's what convinces oftentimes the centurion, the Egyptian, and others. When they see that we trust in the salvation of the Lord, people will watch and observe you. And when they see the reality of Jesus Christ in you, his strength and peace and comfort that he's given to you, you see, people aren't always convinced when we're going through easy times, when we're just cruising. But it's in the dark hour. When you say, you know, I'm going to make it to the other side. And God is going to make a way of escape. And I don't have to be afraid because God is faithful and God's word is true. And I can rest in his love and be comforted by him because he's with me and he promised he'll never leave me or forsake me. And they see that in you. And then you get to bring Christ to them. And that comfort that only he can truly comfort them with that comes from him. You look to him. You trust in him. You call out to him. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this opening of these words that, Lord, I do pray that all of us, that we would just look to you in the comfort that we need that comes only from you. And Father, we do. As, as Paul brought a message of comfort, he, he would bring that message of the simplicity of the gospel to the Corinthian believers. And he would say to the Corinthian believers, that I bring Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's the message that we bring this morning, even in this service. And Lord, as I see on this holiday weekend that, that we're here, but Lord, once again, we want to make sure that there are people, if there's someone here in the coffee shop that has never responded to the gospel message, this is your opportunity to receive ultimate comfort and salvation. It's knowing that Jesus Christ loves you and went through suffering for you that he died on Calvary's cross for you specifically because you have needed the Savior. You can't save yourself and no one else can save you, only Jesus. He came and died on the Calvary's cross for you specifically. And you can receive him as you come in belief, as you open up your heart to him, as you realize your need for him and that you're a sinner and that it is Jesus that brings forgiveness. That as he knocks on the door of your heart this morning, today is the day of salvation. Open up your heart to him.